Today, part two of our discussion on the separability of art and artist. Can art be separated from the artist? Should art be separated from the artist? And what do thinkers like Hannah Arendt, Hans-Georg Gadamer, Martin Heidegger and Roland Barthes say about this? I'm Kieran O'Meara and you're listening to The Pollitt Podcast. Before we move on to today's episode, what I would like to do is briefly recap the first part of this two-part series on separating art from artist. So, although it was discussed in perhaps a rather complicated fashion, the previous episode focused on two relations of proximity between art and artist. Firstly, we saw that one can criticise the notion that the artist and the work of art are totally separable as merely creator and creation. That was the first relation that we discussed, was that art and the artist are totally distinguishable. Secondly, through Heidegger, we saw that the two are actually always interconnected through their relationship with the essence of art, which Heidegger refers to as the poeticization of existence and the disclosure of truth. The posit of existence in art is what is expressed by the onlooker, turning them from a mere spectator into an interpreter. In this regard, the role of the interpreter has a potentially important role in discussing the separability of the work of art and the artist, as the interpreter is the mediator of the work of art. Today, in order to discuss the pivotal role of the interpreter, this final relation of proximity between art and artist, we're going to have to go a bit deeper. Here, what we're going to discuss is the relation, the mutual construction, I should say, of creation, creator, and interpreter. And in order to do this, we shall turn to the work of the noted literary theorist and semiotician, Roland Barthes. In one of his greatest essays, The Death of the Author, Barthes deals with the question of the author's role in relation to an authority over text. In this, we can basically transpose Barthes' work to discuss our own topic, which is, of course, the relationship and separability of art and the artist. We can understand the author and the text as but one incarnation of this relationship, where an author is artist and the text art. At the beginning of this particular essay, Roland Barthes seems to suggest that interpreting and explaining a text is always sought through through the narrative voice of the author, as if the author confides in us a sacred meaning of the text at hand. There is an imminent problem with this, and that's that as the author is thought of as confiding in us a certain meaning, the very language they use to mediate meaning is thought to be their own. Bart claims, rather, open quote, it is language which speaks, not the author, to write is through a prerequisite impersonality, not at all to be confused with castrating objectivity of the realist novelist, to reach that point where only language acts, performs, and not me. This impersonality that Barthes speaks of seems itself to be language, as it is through language that the author constructs utterances to be mediated. In this sense, 
it's easy to interpret that Barthes' objective is to shift the hermeneutic discussion of how we interpret meaning away from privileging the horizon of the artist and ultimately emphasising the horizon of the interpreter as constructing the meaning of a text through a linguistic framework. So to put that into our frame, um, it seems to be that Barth's objective is to shift the hermeneutic discussion of how we interpret meaning away from privileging the horizon of the artist and ultimately emphasising the horizon of the interpreter as constructing the meaning of a piece of art through a certain linguistic framework. Barth, it appears, emphasises the linguistic role of the author. It is worth briefly highlighting that an author, although they mould a text through their skill of ordering language, don't sit outside of language itself. The author does not sit anterior to their linguistic horizon, but rather speaks through it. In his fantastic work, in my opinion, <laughs> Philosophical Hermeneutics, Hans-Georg Gadamer discusses precisely this notion. Here, Gadamer affirms that language is essentially human and that man is a linguistic being, implying that there never was a pre-linguistic era where man was without language. Thus, humanity and language are constituent of one another. The problem we face, as Gadamer affirms, is that language is in itself inescapable. To contemplate language is to contemplate and exist within its purview. He argues that, quote, the appearance of the concept of language presupposes the consciousness of language. All thinking about language is already once again drawn back into language. We can only think in language, and just as this residing of our thinking in a language is the profound enigma that language presents to thought. Language is by no means simply an instrument. We are already always encompassed by the language that is our own. End quote. For the existential thinkers in the mid-20th century, the all-encompassing nature of language appeared as an enigma precisely, as they affirmed, of its inescapability. All meaning, all thought, all disclosure and mediation of life is done through language and how we grasp that language. Through the creation of new language, new entities are brought into existence, and through the extinguishing or fading of language, entities themselves fade. Language is thus the cloak that shrouds our being, all being. Further in the essay, Man and Language, Gadamer stipulates that, quote, learning to speak does not mean learning to use a pre-existent tool for designating a world already somehow familiar to us. Learning to speak means acquiring a familiarity, an acquaintance with the world itself and how it confronts us. In truth, we are already at home in language, just as much as we are in the world. End quote. Language is how we construct, mediate and disclose every entity within the world itself. And language, we must never forget, is not created by us, but by our ancestors. It's in this vein that all existence, as language, exists within a historical horizon. The language that I'm using now was not created by me or us, but rather by the past, and as such discloses a connection to meaning from another time. In this manner, all being is historical because of the all-encompassing nature of language, or as Gadamer states in his magnum opus, Truth and Method, 
quote, In fact, history does not belong to us. We belong to it. Precisely as we belong to language and all the experience this incurs. As language is created by humans and equally forges how we humans grasp the world, the very act of experiencing and mediating the world is a social experience because we engage with one another and mediate our common world through language, both by discourse in the present and with the past through historically posited meaning. Thus, to quote again, to quote Gadama once again, open quote, hence language is the real medium of the human being. If we only see it in the realm that it alone fills out, the realm of human being together, the realm of common understanding, of ever-replenished common agreement, a realm as indispensable to human life as the air we breathe. Through Gadama, what can we see? We can see that meaning is disclosed, posited and interpreted through language. If you didn't hear me say the word language enough, just go and replay the last two minutes. <laughs> In this way, the interpretive experience of art is itself a linguistic one. To state that, something like, I don't know, uh, moreover the theme that dominates the latter water lilies of lily pads floating on the water surface is common in Japanese prints, or even ranging from the, from the desperate and loveless landscapes of taxman Eleanor Rigby and A Day in the Life to the anthemic tribute of All You Need Is Love, the Beatles explore the many faces of love. Saying like either one of these is to clearly demonstrate that like any other experience, the interpretation of art is done within the all-encompassing horizon of language. Therefore, the manner in which we grasp linguistic meaning as social individuals, adapts how we interpret a work of art as an individual interpreter-subject. Now this takes us back to Bart. If we read Bart through this part of Gadamer's thinking, we can see that Bart's critique is to rid the author of their authority over the reader's potential linguistic interpretive experience. Here's a section I've quoted from Bart. The author when believed in, is always conceived of as the past of his own book. Book and author stand automatically on a single line divided into before and after. The author is thought to nourish the book, which is to say that he exists before it, thinks, suffers, lives for it, is in the same relation of antecedence to his work as a father to his child. In complete contrast, the modern scripter is born simultaneously with the text, is in no way equipped with a being preceding or exceeding the writing, is not the subject with the book as predicate. End quote. Interestingly, we interpret this, we can interpret this, as Bart's disclosure of the creator-creation relationship. This was what was stipulated at the beginning of last week's episode. The clear-cut division between creator and creation leads us to believe that the author or artist has a prioritised position in disclosing what the meaning of their text, the art, is, as if it were concrete somehow. Thus replacing the author with a scripter reduces this authority as it adapts the creator-creation relationship in order to open this relation to a third agent, the interpreter. But at least in my interpretation, 
aims at unanchoring the work of art to the single meaning declared by the author as being a true interpretation of their creation. By castrating the author of their theological authority, Bart intends on privileging the interpreter, breaking open the interpretive potential of an artwork and relinquishing it of any interpretive limits. Indeed, he goes on to state, quote, we know now that a text is not a line of words releasing a single theological meaning, i.e. the message of an author God, but a multi-dimensional space in which a variety of writings, none of them original, blend and clash, end quote. This very notion of the author God that Bart expounds is a rebellion against the privileged position we give an author in deciding how we, as an interpreter, understand the meaning of a text. As language is the very fabric of being, and as language is created within an intersubjective socio-historical horizon, the meaning of language can be interpreted within a multiplicity of differences between interpreters. <laughs> Uh, the famous pas passage by Charles Dickens, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and so on, can be interpreted in so many different ways, connected to the manner in which we mediate these terms when they come together as a whole. This whole is a collection of terms which forge a paragraph, page, chapter, or book as text. But it mustn't be forgotten that these collections are exactly that, a whole collection of individual parts. In succeeding the author, the scripter lays bare the terms to be interpreted that come together as a single whole, forging what Bart refers to as a tissue of signs, uh, an imitation that is lost, infinitely deferred. As a tissue of signs, a text can be freed of its interpretive limits, as defined by the previous theological author, Iti, <laughs> by the previous theological authority. A sign can defer linguistic meaning, ultimately leading the interpreter to an absently present meaning. For a simplistic example in the way that the term torrential tends to lead us to the absent presence of rain. This process Bart referred to as the multiplicity of writing, in which, quote, everything is to be disentangled, nothing deciphered, the structure can be followed, run like the thread of a stocking at every point and every level but there is nothing beneath the space of writing is to be ranged over not pierced writing ceaselessly posits meaning ceaselessly to evaporate it carrying out a systematic exemption of meaning in precisely this way literature it would better from now on to say writing <laughs> by refusing to assign a secret and ultimate meaning to the text and to the world as text liberates what may be called an anti-theological activity an activity that is truly revolutionary since to refuse to fix meaning is in the end to refuse god end quote I think it's interesting to construe that Bart forges a revolutionary perspective by disentangling the artist from the art, by permitting the interpreter to bring it into their into being meaning through their own linguistic interpretation of the tissue of signs. As language is constructed by us and our frameworks of existence by language, and as language exists within a socio-historical horizon, 
Different societies, cultures, and networks of language place different meaning upon the same sign. We, as readers of Bart, avoiding the ironic trap <laughs> of turning Bart into an author god, interpret the essay, or tend to interpret the essay, as disclosing primarily an insistence that the unity or potential meaning of a text rests in its destination, i.e. that the meaning the interpreter bestows on the tissue of signs placed together by the scripter. In this sense, to break open the potentiality of an artwork's meaning is to disentangle it from its creator, to engage with what Bart refers to as the death of the author. This implies that the work's interpreter is given priority to interpret a work of art without any limits of supposed authority, following the all-encompassing and enigmatic path that the horizon of language presents, the very horizon that we as humans sit within, albeit at different points and moments. This concerns our question of separability precisely as though Bart's lens, we can contend that there is another agent in the relationship between the artist and the art, namely the interpreter. To twist Bart's final invocation, the birth of the interpreter must be at the death of the artist. In this manner, although the artist reifies thought and brings the work into the world, it is the interpreter who ultimately bestows meaning upon the work of art itself. By introducing this third agent into the formula of art's separability from the artist, the two become even further separated. The artist and the work of art gain a distance between them, despite the positive creative poeticizing that exists within the art, following Heidegger. It is ultimately not the artist who drags the meaning of an artwork into existence, but the interpreter. Through the linguistic interpretive experience of mediating meaning, the interpreter becomes a second, more important creator dragging the meaning of a work of art into the world itself. Thus, as the artist is castrated of their interpretive authority over the art, a distance between art and artist ensues. Their proximity widens. Here, it was effectively given three answers to the question of art's separability from the artist. The first stipulated that as creator and creation, the artist and the art are by definition wholly separate entities. The second exclaimed the Heideggerian notion that the two are not separate because they're mutually constructive and unified through the very idea of art as a poeticized and disclosing existence, one that is interpretively experienced. The apparent centrality of the interpretive experience of art was then discussed, or at least we just discussed it, through the work of Roland Barthes. This third stipulation exclaimed that when the interpretive experience is given a central position in the relationship between the artist and the art, the interpreter gains agency within that relationship itself, separating the artist and the art to some degree as the interpreter produces and mediates the meaning of a work of art in the world itself. And this breaks open the potentiality for how the art can be understood and the meaning it can have in the world. This is all well and good, providing three equally valid answers to the question. However, something seems to be lacking. 
perhaps mere separability isn't really the true question at hand. So if perhaps separability is not the true question at hand, what is? So far, we've been discussing the nature of can art be separated from the artist. This, the discussion that we've just had before the interlude deals with the question and essentially provides three responses. Yes, as creator and creation. No, as creator and creation mutually construct one another in that they share a foundational connection to art. Yes, as through the utterance of language, as Bart claims, a work of art escapes the clutches of the artist's hold the moment it's interpreted, presenting the interpreter with agency. Therefore, it doesn't really take a genius to see that there are a number of responses to the question. However, if we turn back to the cause of this investigation and cast a light over its inception with the path we have travelled, something else can be illuminated. At the beginning of last week's episode, this investigation began in the wake of the documentary concerning Michael Jackson, discussing his supposed acts of child molestation and grooming. If we were to use this analysis, in this case, with the question in mind, we would see that, first of all, Michael Jackson is separable from his music. Secondly, Michael Jackson and his music create one another, and that lastly, Michael Jackson, this music, and the listener are in a constant conversation concerning how his art is to be interpreted. As is fairly simple to see, the question of can we separate the art from the artist is rather easy to answer. <laughs> it can indeed be done, but this might perhaps be neglecting something of the very essence of art itself namely the posit of the artist and the interpreter resting within and synonymously outside the artwork itself not to mention the role of the interpreter nonetheless this answer really does miss the mark of the real question being asked in the formulas discussed in this episode and the last any artist or creator could have been used but the scandal here rests with michael jackson and the extent to which his activities have had an effect on how we interpret his art. To us, this indicates a tectonic shift in how the question itself is framed. The real underlying question here is not really the extent to which separation, such a separation is possible between art and artist, but rather the real question at hand is, should art and the artist be separated? This is a normative question. In a single adaptation of the, of the question, we encounter the kernel of what's really being asked in the age of the hashtag MeToo movement, Jimmy Savile, celebrity paedophilia, and so on. This indicates a shift away from an, from an explanatory question of intrigue to a normative question of significance for our age, a shift from aesthetics to ethics. If, as we've already discussed, we can separate the art from the artist in a number of different ways, through the death of the author and the rise of the interpreter by the sheer performative fact of experiencing art's disclosure of meaning, in an age where such discrepancy has been made public, 
and an artist becomes perceived to be an immoral agent, does the stain on the character of the artist bleed onto their art? I personally think this can be answered simply, but as simply as complicatedly. <laughs> yes, as the posit of the artist always remains somewhere in our interpretive framework, the fact of this inquiry is testimony to that fact. Therefore, should art undergo a separation from the artist, when the artists like Jackson, Weinstein, Spacey or even Picasso are revealed to have committed certain immoral activities? This is the scope of what we're going to discuss now. To answer the underlying ethical question of art's separability from the artist, namely, this question should be moved or changed to should a separation be enforced in certain circumstances. In order to answer the ethical question at the heart of this inquiry, I've kind of chosen to direct this investigation by asking three smaller questions. One, who is responsible for art and the artist? Two, is it more damaging to individuals and to society to censor so-called tainted art or to let the transgressions be known en masse? And finally, three, is it wrong to destroy art, to get rid of it, to erase it? Once all three questions have been addressed, some concluding thought will be presented. The first step on our small expedition <laughs> towards an answer lies in answering firstly who is responsible for art and therefore the artist. Art for art's sake is the inherent value of art, divorced from any didactic, moral or utilitarian function. When true, quote, true art is created without any purpose other than that of its own creation, the answer to the question of who is responsible for the art depends upon whether the art in question proves to be true or not, <laughs> somewhat tautologically. So firstly, what is art and what is not? To be considered art, a thought or idea must be reified without a function. It must be brought into existence only to exist tangibly and therefore able to be experienced. This relates to what we were discussing last week about rent. Let us excuse then the fact that a piece of art brought into being by an artist can become non-art when utilised for a function other than simply existing. For example, if a marble sculpture were to be used as a battering ram, <laughs> or a painting burned as fuel for a fire, they would gain a function in performance, enacting the process of becoming another object of the human artifice, falling from grace. Simply, a work of art is castrated of its position as such when the object of work is utilised through performance of humans for some instrumental ends. It's through the performative experience of bestowing upon the object of the artwork some function that equally actualises its fall. Likewise, therefore, you could argue that the opposite is true, that non-art created with a specific function can be considered art when it remains unused, but is nonetheless experienced. Tracy Emin's bed is just a brilliant example of this. So then, despite the transformable nature of objects and art, for this argument, let us consider what the object is at the point of its actualization. Since anybody could potentially alter artwork by utilising it, we have to realise whom, at its moment of actualization, has bestowed the object its nature, 
Of course, this is the artist. The artist being the person or persons whose physical bodies have brought the object into being. If the artist has created this object to be experienced without a function, then we are to consider it art. Our next question is then, what does it mean to be responsible for art? In the very word responsible is the implication of action. Does this mean responsible for the act of bringing the art into existence? Alternatively, could it mean the act of those who interpret it? Responsibility for art's creation or responsibility for art's effect equally. Responsible for the art's existence is the artist. Although an artist can, and often is, employed or commissioned by another to create art, using the artist almost as a tool. In this process, the commissioner can specify, with varying degrees of detail and control, what exactly they want the artist to create. In this instance, it could be argued that it's therefore not the artist who is responsible for the art, but the commissioner. However, the artist cannot reify the ideas of another, only their own understanding of another's ideas. In understanding another's idea, the idea becomes unique to the artist, no matter how infinitely small or undoubtedly large the variance in the understanding of the idea is. And therefore, the resultant piece of art is always a creation of the individual to whom the hands of creation belong. Since the artist can generally choose whether or not to actually create art for or on behalf of someone else, the person responsible for its existence is still the artist's and no one else's. Since art is created as a means to express an artist's contemplation, it can be compared to other ways of engaging with this. Commonly this takes the form of verbal communication, but however can also be achieved through body language and so on. If we hold individuals accountable for their views, opinions and ideas when they present them to us in verbal discourse, then what reason do we have to infract that belief when these ideas are presented through an artistic medium? We have no reason. Art is a communication of sorts, and it's up to the artist to decide exactly how they want to communicate their thought or idea. In the same way that expressing thoughts or ideas verbally in certain ways can often cause certain reactions, particularly if the thoughts and ideas are controversial in nature and or are presented in a controversial manner. So too can artworks. Alas, Although it may be known that particular ideas and methods of presenting them are likely to cause outrage and controversy, it is simply not the artist's fault that this occurs. It is not the artist's obligation to present their reified contemplation in such a way that avoids controversy. If the thought or idea is controversial in nature, then the artwork cannot be a true representation of the exact thought or idea the artist presents the idea in a less truthful, non-controversial manner. How one interprets a piece of art is up to only themselves. So if the way they interpret the art causes them to be offended, for instance, or upset, hence responding in violence or protest, then that is a result of their own interpretation, not the artist's. So then, we have an answer to our secondary question. As they are an instrument that brings the artwork into creation, the artist is responsible for art's existence. Nonetheless, 
As we've concluded, true art, as in art maybe with a capital A, has no function, meaning that in itself cannot affect or alter the human artifice in which it now exists, whereas an object created with a function, a chisel for instance, can. Therefore we must conclude that while they are responsible for, the, for art's existence, artists are not responsible for its interpretation. After all, it's not the effect of art to change anything about the space in which it exists. In fact, it can't. It's the effects of the actions of those who experience it that alter the world. The fact that the experience of art can help alter the world, then, is perhaps why the ethical dilemma of whether or not to continue to allow the experiences of art created by an artist whose actions have been deemed unsavoury actually occur. This implies that the artist's work is always naturally tainted by their personal actions, and thus holds the potentiality to taint those who experience it. Therefore this then begs the ethical question, and this is a huge ethical question, is it more damaging to individuals and to society to censor tainted art, or to let the transgressions be known en masse? A teeny tiny step, however, has been overlooked. <laughs> That is to say, how the jump is made from deciding that an artist's actions are unsavoury and they are therefore tainted, and how that in turn applies to their art. This means we must answer the question, how is art tainted? Everyone forms their own interpretation of art when they experience it, and what factors they let influence their interpretation are of course up to them. However, when an interpreter takes into account the intentions of the artist, we're remaking what Bart calls the author god. We're giving the author both interpretive power over how we think about their work and institutional power over how they get to treat society or people within society without consequences. Here, in an article on the topic... Constance Grady argues that actually because of this, it might be right to separate art and the artist for her own interpretational experience. But it can also be for the sake of justice. Separating the art from the artist as much as possible, allowing the art to exist outside of its relation to a subject, permits the greatest possible potential for the interpreter. This means that art only becomes tainted when the artist's intentions are indeed taken into account, as to allow somebody to have an interpretational sway over you is to let them co-own the art, your art. However, it's not the art itself that becomes tainted, it's your interpretation of it. It's what you've posited in the art, the artwork as it is to you. The piece of artwork itself can never be tainted. If you yourself choose to posit the artist, to whatever degree that may be, into the art, then it's you as an interpreter who has tainted it because you are the individual, you are the agent that has posited the artist. The question, is it more damaging to individuals and to society to censor tainted art and the artist, or to let the transgressions be known en masse, then really is redundant. Art that already exists and has already been experienced, therefore is unable to be censored. It may be censored so that those who have not yet experienced it will experience it, and thus interpret it differently, but this is because it will become a different artwork. New art, if you will. 
but for those who have already experienced it as it was created, censorship becomes particularly complex. They can choose to experience the new art, but that is just kind of it. It's now a different artwork. Their interpretation of the original artwork is not necessarily subject to change. This is exactly why art is difficult to censor. As soon as an artwork is censored in any way, it transforms into a new, unique artwork. Artwork that is censored is destroyed, and a new artwork is born from this, of which the censorship is a constituent, is a, a part of its frame. In this sense, then, censorship, as it were, doesn't necessarily exist. In reality, or at least the censorship of art. In reality, art is being destroyed. With this, the question isn't, is it more damaging to the individual and to society to censor tainted art and the artist, or to let the transgressions be known en masse? This is now secondary. Folding it into our next question, it becomes... Is it wrong to destroy art? However, since right and wrong are concepts constructed by humans and bear no universally agreed credence... <laughs> I say that as if it's an objective fact. <laughs> For the purpose of answering our question, then, we have to solve from whose perspective the question springs and holds importance. We must ask, whom is art for? To experience art is to experience humanity and its creations as a human amongst other humans. In simpler terms, this is to experience society. We can state with confidence that art that is shared publicly, but with restrictions, is to limit participation in society, in that public space. Therefore, an artist, or at least the owner of an artwork, can choose whether or not to exhibit the piece publicly, privately, or not at all, as it is, legally, theirs to do with whatever they please, at least for the time being. Hence, in that sense, art can be private or public. It could be argued that for a significant piece of art to remain unexhibited by the general public is to deny their participation in society as the artwork may be so important as to contribute towards the advancement of human society as a whole. So, artwork that is created and remains solely in the possession of the artist for only their experience will remain to belong to the artist until such a decision is made that allows for others to experience it. This could be via public exhibition or if the ownership of the art simply passes to someone else. And Therefore, this would allow them the opportunity to experience it as an owner. If, then, the decision is made to exhibit the artwork publicly, and through that public exhibition it comes to be of significant societal value, then reasonably it may be decided that to revoke or deny its public exhibition is to hinder an individual's ability to participate in society. Nevertheless, this, this does kind of bear the question, who decides what artwork is of societal value? Of course, this continues to be those who posit anything and everything into an artwork, those who make artwork what it is, and that is the audience, the crowd, being in this case the general public. So I kind of believe now we have an answer to our preliminary question, who is art for? Art is for the artist. 
they create art as a means of self-expression. And once they have expressed what they want, it's for them to decide whom they wish to share it with. Next is the owner. If the artist allows for the continuation or survival of their art through the ownership of another, then it becomes theirs to do with what they please. Lastly, if a decision is made by the owner of an artwork to exhibit the art publicly, then if we deem it to be so, it's for society, and in that, the individual as a human amongst other humans. So we edge closer to an answer. <laughs> so many questions, so many preliminary questions and answers. To reiterate, to experience art is to experience humanity and its creations as a human amongst other humans. In a simpler way, art is to experience society. Censoring art thus undermines it and replaces it with a more appropriate artwork. And that's to alter the reality of the society that is created by humans amongst other humans. Hence, to censor art is therefore not just to allow the participation in a false social frame, but to propagate that falsity. It is to build a wall in front of the expressions it deems to be inappropriate, despite the fact that these expressions originated from within the very walls it built to keep them out. To further advance society would depend upon the ability to acknowledge issues or problems with it and work towards correcting them. Instead, censorship prohibits us from advancing society by making it impossible for us to experience the problems with it. It's because of this reason that the censorship and resulting destruction of art is indeed damaging to society, and therefore the individuals that constitute its very assemblage. It is effectively personally limiting, socially limiting, and it's for these reasons the destruction of art, the censorship of art, proves problematic. Okay, here are some concluding thoughts. This two-part series sought to answer the question, can art be separated from the artist? Through our investigation, we've discovered that there are a handful of answers to this simple separability of art from the artist. The first determined that as creator and creation, the artist and the art were wholly distinct entities. The second exclaimed the Heideggerian idea that the two are not separable as they mutually construct and unify one another through their relation via art as a poeticized and disclosing existence, an existence that's interpretively experienced. From here, the centrality of the interpretive experience was then examined through the work of Barth. This third answer contended that when the interpretive experience is set a central position in the relationship between the artist and the art, the interpreter becomes an agent within the relationship itself, completely breaking open the potentiality for how the art can be understood and the existential meaning it could be granted in the world. To this extent, the artist and the art are at quite a distance from one another with the interpreter subject taking the privileged place the artist once clung on to desperately, disseminating authority amongst multiplicity. In this manner, 
three frames through which one could judge the separability of the art from the artist were presented. Nonetheless, although the basic separability was addressed, something really was lacking. This was located in the structure and manner of the question itself, shifting our emphasis from an aesthetic analysis to an ethically normative mode of questioning. This manifested itself in the rewording of the question to ask, should art be separated from the artist, grounding the remainder of the piece on the ethical queries at the heart of art's separability from the artist, and whether or not such a separation should be imposed in certain cases. Overall, I would like to come to a close with this series by affirming that no, we should not enforce or recommend a widespread separation of art from artist. If we do, it is to choose what is deemed worthy to be an interpretational experience. By separating one from the other, we neglect the interpreter and the meaning they attach to the connection between artist and their art as a part of their interpretive experience. For some, someone like Picasso might be nothing more than a domestic abuser, and the tissue of signs flooding from his artwork cannot escape that fact. For others, the very same signs may, could, can, and probably do disclose alternative meaning, viewing his art as distinct from himself, standing alone as an independent entity which isn't corrupted by the man who once applied the paint. It really is not our collective role to determine in what circumstances and for whom art must be separable from the artist. However, it is our role to ensure, entrench and enshrine the open-ended possibility for what art can be and what it can become. In order to sustain the imminence of potentiality, cutting off no single interpretive experience, so to make any and all interpretation possible, we really must refrain from such restrictive activity. It's the role of the interpreter, however, the individual being who breathes life into a work of art through their interpretation of its disclosure of meaning. The interpreter, in this manner, becomes their only master of restriction, as self-restriction of interpretation in this process settles on an interpretive understanding of the world at hand that lacks the suffocation of stifling the open-ended potentialities of interpretive experience as a whole. Finally, we must save the capacity for the individual to judge, interpret, choose or acknowledge the transgressions of an artist when experiencing their creative output, as to experience art is to experience the creations in the world as a human amongst other humans. So you've been listening to the second part of the Pollitt series on separating art from artist. I know this episode was a little bit longer than normal, and don't worry, next week we'll be going back to somewhere in between half an hour and 45 minutes. Next week, I will be joined with Dr. Ari Jerems to discuss the idea of the urban in international relations and international politics and how the international urban or the urban subject is itself political. 
if you haven't already done so, please, please, please go to the website. There you'll be able to see the article, the long essay that this two-part series was based on by Cameron Maltwood and myself, Kieran Amira. And please, please, please like, share, subscribe and follow. It really does make a difference. And just click on that little follow or subscribe button somewhere on the screen in front of you. <laughs> now, if you haven't been to the website, please, please do so. As I say, there you'll be able to find the article this particular series was from. And there you'll also be able to find content that didn't make it into the podcast and added articles that don't become podcast episodes alongside citations and referencing for everything that we've discussed today. And if you can't remember the name of the website, all you have to do is thinkpollit at www.thinkpollit.com. Thank you and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.